Welcome to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light. Changing the hearts of people will change the world in which we live. In this episode, Pastor Andrew unpacks our biblical beliefs and leads us into Palm Sunday and the miracle of Easter. This is the introduction to the story about Jesus casting the legion of demons out of a poor guy living in the tombs. Now the reason we're coming to this is when Annette and I were preparing for today, she said, for some reason, Palm Sunday has disappeared. Over the last few years, they've been saying that this Sunday was Palm Sunday dash Passion Sunday. Now they're saying it's Passion Sunday. And I said, the reason why that is, is because the Mesonite secret, which was a liberal proposition by a scholar named William Reed, which is W-R-E-D-E, in 1902. So he's writing at the end of the 19th going into the 20th century. And liberal theology at that point in time had an extremely distinct bent. And that was anything supernatural in the Bible was questionable. Because we know that miracles just don't happen. Secondly, anything talking about Satan or demons was non-historical because demons don't exist. That's the basis of it. So before we go to the book, before we investigate the Bible, we've already discounted a majority of what it says. And lo and behold, you'll have liberals in the more extreme version, if not altogether, denying that the resurrection ever happened. And if the resurrection just might have happened, resurrections don't happen, by the way. People don't come back from the dead. I know we resuscitate them, And I know people die on the operating table and they come back through some really intense medical pressure. But effectively, some have been dead three or four days. They don't come back. We know that. Us modern, scientific, enlightenment people just really know the reality of life and that just doesn't happen. That's the presumption or the presupposition with which we approach the Bible, which we then aim to read. So it's not surprising that a number of the passages are discounted, put aside. You know, Jesus didn't really say that. And the Jesus Seminar, which is a group of liberal theologians, have their estimates. And lo and behold, at the most, 20% of what's attributed to Jesus in the Gospels 
was actually ever said by him. Well, that changes the Bible a fair bit, doesn't it? Now, I remember writing recently and giving some of my comprehensive background with the Calvinists, the liberals, the evangelicals, the Anglo-Catholics, and the reason people. And I said, my understanding of the Bible comes from none of those five streams, three or four of them I'm a scholar in and a theologian. My understanding of the Bible as the word of God does not come from any of them. It comes from Father God opening his heart to me and saying, this is what I feel about my word. And I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Back in my early days as a Christian, I'm staying at a college and I'm walking across my car with a whole bunch of books in my arms and it starts to rain. And I was worried about my Bible, which was on the top, getting wet. So I managed to open the boot and throw them in, but as I was doing that, the Bible flipped off the top and fell into this dirty, muddy water. So the whole Bible's engulfed in water. And I jumped down, picked it up, and I was aghast. And God said to me, you're feeling really bad about your Bible. I said, yes, it's all muddy. He says, that's how I feel about men who tread their muddy boots all over my word. God just said something. The book is his word. Hey, it has errors. And those of one extreme that want to eliminate the idea it has errors by talking about inerrancy, you just can't eliminate some of them. They're there. And if you read the Hebrew, it gets worse. There in Exodus, when God appears to poor old Moses and says, I'm going to reveal my name to you, which was Yahweh. And I haven't revealed this to anyone else. I didn't reveal this to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am, God says to Moses. But then you go back and read Genesis. Abraham, Sarah, his wife, his neighbours, who are not God people, are all talking about Yahweh. They're all using his name. Now, it's all right for the narrator to use it, but he actually quotes Abraham using it, and he's got Jacob using it, he's got Isaac using it. They know God as Yahweh. So why did the Hebrew editor leave it that way? Well, it must have been obvious to him. He reads Hebrew. He writes Hebrew. And this is the thing. The God who met with Abraham and called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans was the same God who led the Israelites out of Egypt. There's a massive paradigm change going on in this period. Tribes of Semitic people, like Abraham's tribe, were ruling Egypt is the reason why Joseph became prime minister. It would never have occurred if Egyptians were doing that at that point in time. There's a hundred-year period when they're run by a group called the High Cost, who were non-Egyptians. So God has a book 
that he's called his word. He's instrumental in putting it together. Most of it occurs because he engaged with people just like you and I. Some of them are living in different circumstances to us. The book is about God supernaturally engaging with men, women and children across the board in every part of it. It occurs time and time again. This is a book that's put together by God at human hands. It's an interaction with God with human beings. And God writes his book through human beings, not by dictating to them, but getting them to write down this engagement with the Almighty. And a mistake here or there doesn't disturb its main theological points. It never disturbs its main theological content. And it produces a historical account that the testimony of eyewitnesses of events that you and I are actually experiencing and remembering in this week leading up to Easter. I believe we need to celebrate Palm Sunday because it precedes everything else that goes on. The passion is not here yet. Jesus' death on the cross hasn't occurred yet. And here on Palm Sunday, there's only one person who knows what's coming, and that's Jesus himself. The disciples are totally confused. They have no real idea. Reed claims that Jesus never, ever claimed to be the Messiah in his lifetime. In fact, Jesus tried to dissuade the idea that he was the Messiah in his lifetime in Mark's Gospel. Reed makes all these claims, of course, starting with, well, obviously demons are unhistorical, therefore the story of the Legion is unhistorical. Never happened along with all the other demonic deliverances. John Dixon wrote a book on Jesus, an Australian historian, using the same processes that Reed used to show as a historian, not as a theologian, that the stories about Jesus are historically true. Not only from what the Bible says about them, but when the Roman leadership says about Jesus, Jesus is known to be a miracle worker in his own time, according not only to the Jewish people, but to the Romans who ruled them. So then when we pick up a book called Mark, and Jesus healed this person, and Jesus cast this demon out, Dixon is saying there's historical validity to the stories we're reading, which is everything that Reed and his associates denied absolutely before they ever got to the stories. And I felt that because we're really wanting to look at Mark and we're about to hit the story of Jesus casting out a legion of demons from this poor guy running around the tomb. And if we're going to take the story how it's written and what it means and what it's saying, 
then we've got to deal with Reed and what he claims. Now, why tell you all that? Because we live in a church where that understanding influences us in ways we don't know. Don't you love the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? But if you look at your prayer book, we have prayers that start Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Why do we have those? Because some people don't think that God's name was really Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or because there are at least two masculine terms in that. It's an inappropriate name to have for God. Is God a female is the issue. So imagine how God might feel when he's revealed his name to us and he realized the name Father for God only occurs five times in the Old Testament. And always seems to be about being the father of the fatherless. But in John's Gospel, Jesus uses it something like a hundred times. Jesus reveals to us the nature of God as Father. Jesus reveals to us his nature as the Son, having come from heaven and taken human form. Now, Reed argues this, that the idea of Jesus being the Messiah only occurred after the proposed resurrection. It was an invention of the early church for their missionary work out to the world. And argues that what Mark is doing is putting these little bits and pieces through his gospel to try and give us the idea that Jesus was actually the Messiah. So the other aspect of Palm Sunday that I wanted to keep was this. We heard this reading from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That is an Old Testament Mesonaic claim. This is the king, and he's coming to you, Riding on a donkey. Every Jewish person in Jerusalem, in Galilee, knew that. If any of the significant Mesonaic signs were to occur, they knew this was one of them. The other one is that he would provide bread. In John 6, there's an argument going on between Jesus and the Jews as, well, Moses provided manna in the desert for us. And then Jesus says, I am the true bread coming down from heaven. He had just fed something like 5,000 people with bread. So there is Mesonaic signs all over the book. But I think this is the most significant because, you know, Jesus sends the disciples to do jobs, doesn't he? But here we are told... In verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Jesus found it. He didn't say, go and get me a donkey to ride. 
Jesus found the donkey. Jesus sat on it. Jesus was doing something that he knew was going to be an absolute declaration that he was the Messiah. Could not be mistaken by anybody. That's why they were all crying, Hosanna, and Hosanna. Well, they were doing that before. But the moment he got on the donkey, the roof just lifted on it. And no wonder the leadership is just going berserk and wanting Jesus to quieten it all down. There couldn't have been anything else that Jesus did to claim to be the Messiah than this action. And it's historical. He did it. If he didn't think he was the Messiah, why do something like that? And there's only one reason he did it. He was the Messiah. He was more than the Messiah. He was more than simply a man chosen by God, which is what some people think. Some people think that Jesus' Messiahship began at his baptism, where somehow or other God put his anointing on this man, Jesus, so he could be the Messiah. No, no, no. Jesus came from heaven. The Son of God came from from heaven, took human form to become the Messiah, to be the Messiah. And you know what? Through the Jews, all different parties couldn't get it, couldn't see it. Because the last thing they expected, that God would come himself. They expected a man. They expected a man that would defeat the Romans. They expected a man who would lead the nation. But what they didn't expect was God to take human form. They just couldn't see that standing before them as they judged him on Good Friday was their God. The God they were proclaiming to defend. This Jesus is the real McCoy. And when you walk back through Reed's claims and begin to work with them, you begin to see there were other reasons why Jesus wanted to keep his identity secret. Good reasons. And the reason he wanted to tell the demons to keep quiet and not reveal who he was was because they were trying to incite the crowds about Jesus. He is constantly harassed by the crowds who don't yet click that he is the Messiah. They just know he heals everybody and he casts out demons. And if you add to that, this is the Messiah, the crowd's going to go berserk on him. And yet throughout this Gospel of Mark, there's very deep and very powerful statements about just who Jesus is what he did, why he came, and what he achieved. And what he's achieved is what we're going to be celebrating this coming Good Friday. So I would encourage you to read the studies on Mark. It's really important for us to get a hold in the story of the storm and the story of the legion, what Mark was really telling us.
and it's unbelievable and it's astounding. And Jesus not only had authority over the powers that raged the storm, but also the powers that raged this poor man in the tombs. Jesus just didn't die on the cross so we could go to heaven. He brings us into his kingdom and gives us an agenda. There's a world out there that needs to be changed. And social means are not going to change it. Changing the hearts of people will change the world in which we live. And it is those hearts to which we're called as Christian people. We have the message of life. And Jesus calls us into his kingdom so we can take that message out there and bring people in. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you love your word. That your word is powerful in its impact. Meaningful in every way. Let us have a hunger for it. Let it resound in our hearts so deeply that it motivates us with what motivates you and that we will have a heart for the lost, a desperate heart to bring him into your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.